Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome back to the Theater Podcast, intimate personal conversations with the industry's biggest names. I'm your host, Alan Seals, and this episode is with Jeremy Jordan, who has a virtual concert coming up at 54 Below beginning on May 6th. 2021. It's actually an encore performance, I would say, of his smash hit Carry On, which debuted back in February 2020. Believe it or not, he's actually an extremely shy guy. We got into how hard it was for him initially to start writing these cabaret shows because they're all about him. They're all about his his past and his life. And that's something that until pretty recently, he just didn't really allow many people into on that level. This one gets extremely personal. His childhood, which, as he says, was uh, was very rocky. So basically carry on this performance now that uh, you can get tickets for at 54below.com is the story of of growing up and how he became who he is, which, if you ask my opinion, he did all right. He's a pretty great guy. So find me online on Instagram and Twitter. Follow along. Hit that subscribe button or that like button, depending on how you are listening right now. And everybody, please enjoy this episode with Jeremy Jordan. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Here you go, one, two, three. My guest today may be best known for his Tony and Grammy-nominated portrayal of Jack Kelly in Newsies on Broadway, as well as his many roles on television, including series regulars on CW, Supergirl, NBC's Smash, and Disney Channel's Tangled. Recently, he starred on Broadway opposite Kerry Washington in the provocative new play American Son, and then reprised his role in the Netflix film adaptation. Other films include The Last Five Years opposite Anna Kendrick, Joyful Noise with Queen Latifah and Dolly Parton, and Newsies of course, on Disney+. Plus. Additional Broadway credits include starring as Clyde and Bonnie and Clyde, Tony in West Side Story, and lead roles in Waitress and Rock of Ages, Jeremy Jordan. <gasps> now that I've read that bio, welcome to the Theater Podcast. Thank you so much. It was just a rousing rendition of, of my bio. 
Well, it was completely plagiarized from the 54 Below uh, concert site. I figured as much. It sounded very familiar. <laughs> but you made it your yeah, own. I didn't know if you if you wrote it or not, but while I was researching, obviously, we're here to talk about your concert. And when I was reading up on this show, so you've got this, this concert coming up on May 6th, and... Mm-hmm. And it's called Carry On at 54 Below. But normally on the podcast, I get into people's childhoods and how they got on into performing and whatnot. But your show seems to touch on that same subject. So I figure we can both, you know, let's start with the show. Tell us what the show is about. And then let's go back in time a little bit. Yeah, I'm glad I canceled my therapy session today because this seems to be going down that route. That's why we're um, here. <laughs> um, yeah, so Carry On. Well, I'll go back. I mean, this is my third um, cabaret show at 54 Below. And I've done them all over the country and all over the world. And every time I do a show at 54 Below, I try to do something special, something different. And I've done like the shows of, you know, here's a story, here's a song, here's a story, here's a song. Like, here's my, here's the best of, you know, and the story behind the scenes of what really happened. You know, I've done all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, and when I see like these intimate shows at at um, you know these small clubs, the thing that I love the most is when people um, just dive in and get really real, you know, because it's fun to like have fun with the audience and and to you know joke and and you know goof off with them, which I also do. But it's a really cool opportunity to tell a really intimate and surprising story. So back when I did this in February of 2020, pandemic eve, as I like to call it, and that's. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I didn't tell anybody what the show was about. And so they came just expecting me to, you know, sing songs and have a fun day. And um, not that there is not fun to be had in it, but it, it's, it, it's sort of the show is kind of plays out like a play with songs intertwined. And so the whole thing is scripted. It's basically a love letter to my new daughter. So I have a kid. She's two years old. Her name is Clara. And uh, when I went to write this show, I was like, what do I have to talk about? how about this thing that has taken over my life for the past year or two? And so um, it sort of became amusing over what it is going to be like or what it could possibly be like to be a father and how I could sort of try not to make the same mistakes that my parents made when I was being raised and how I could help her avoid the pitfalls that I fell into when I was a kid growing up because I had a kind of rocky childhood. And so it it sort of stemmed from that point. And so um, half the show is me kind of talking to her. And we created this sort of environment of this in-between space where we're not sure where we are, but I'm sitting there conversing with my daughter and telling her some of the stories of my past and my childhood. And and then the rest of the show it takes place at the club at 54 Below, where I'm talking to the proverbial audience at home, kind of looking right into the camera and um, sharing, sharing you know, that experience. And so it kind of flips back and forth and until it doesn't. It's a cool little experiment. It kind of feels like an experimental piece <laughs> because it was experimental enough as it was with, with a live audience, but now that there is no audience and, you know, I'm still trying to tell jokes and still trying to um, emote and connect with people through a camera. It's uh, It was a different kind of interesting journey. Well, originally, 
So you said it was in February that you recorded it originally. There was a live audience back then because no, of pandemic. I, I didn't. I didn't record it in February. I did the live show in February, and I right. did two, a two week run with no intention of recording it. Um, it went really well. I mean, it sold out, and then COVID hit, and now everybody's like, "Let's do virtual things." And um, so, as part of this series, they asked me if I could record that same show. Now I had to update it because like I didn't have an audience to laugh at all my jokes and it was like over a year later and my kid had grown up and since it was about her like all the you know one-year-old jokes had to become about two-year-old jokes <laughs> and so like it was like a whole I had to kind of rework the whole thing. Like thinking back to to when my first son was born and I've got I've got two boys that are about five and six and a half almost seven ish now and it's funny because I remember when I was when I was a, I guess in my late twenties, late to mid twenties, and and I was thinking, you know, I got out of college and I was starting to, you know, I put in air quotes here, make it, you know, I was doing job things and trying to adult, and not doing it very well. Looking back on it at the time, I thought I was amazing, and thinking back on my parents at that time, I said, well when I have kids, I'm going to not screw up and I'm not going to make those same mistakes. And my parents were always doing this and I'm not going to do that. But then now as a dad of two that are slightly older than, than your daughter, it's, it's taught so much, not only about me and how I react to things, but then in general, why my parents reacted to me at that age as well. And it, it just frames things so much. And I don't want to go anywhere you're not comfortable with with going, but you know you said you <laughs> said you had a rocky it, childhood. It oh, goes go ahead, pretty go deep in the show, so yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm definitely I'm I'm really excited to see it. But like, what's one of the things that sort of has been surprising for your to to learn about yourself now that you're a dad? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. It's and it's continuing to grow and change. Uh, almost, it feels like every day. I mean, the the whole idea of the show is that I, as soon as I became a dad, it felt like all this stuff that I've been holding on to from my childhood, you know, and at that point I was not going to therapy. I am now, <laughs> but like all this stuff I've been holding on to, like felt like it was taking up all of my heart space, you know? Mm. And so the idea was that I was going to excise this these negative memories or these sort of things that I've been holding on to that because as an actor, as like an artist, you're like, Oh, if I share things with people, it'll become less heavy. You know, it'll become less burdensome on myself. And, you know, I'm always like kind of, I keep things close to the chest except for when I perform, that's like when I can do that. And so I told myself like I was going to just start sharing stories and, and sort of lift it off, lift that weight. And then I, I did. I mean, I did the show, like I said, back in February, and it was cathartic for like the first couple performances. And I did two weeks. And then after you do it a couple of times, it's like, uh, you know, it, it, you're like, I've done this. I like I've had that catharsis moment. But then what it became was it became for the audience. Like people would come up to me after the show and be like, I thank you so much for, you know, having that therapy session like it made me sort of really think about my own childhood and think about my parents and like it makes me want to call my mom and talk to her about things that I haven't talked to so like that was a really interesting um, thing that happened and what it did for me was it was kind of a 
a late effect of that. So after the show closed and then COVID hit, all that stuff sort of hit me retroactively, which is why I started going to therapy. <laughs> but it's like, I had let go of those things in a small way, but there's a difference of like saying I'm letting go and then scripting it into a show and then like really putting it out and, and drawing it out really neatly onto paper and saying the words in a really cool artistic way and then actually dealing with it, you know? I think it became a little bit like a coping mechanism for me, almost like it, it became a way for me to fake deal with that stuff um, on stage so that I wouldn't have to really deal with it. And then, you know, as many people experienced during this past year, it boils up and you got to deal with it, you know? And so I think ultimately it provided a door and sort of opened me up in that way so that I could continue to grow as a human being. And if I hadn't had Claire, my daughter, I don't know that I would have reached that point. You know, I, I tend to be the kind of person that pushes things down and sort of holds down tight to them. And if something is bothering me, if it's not like super surface level, I just kind of like, no, it's all good. I'll just handle it. I don't want to make a fuss. I don't want to do something like that. I don't want to mm -hmm. put myself in a precarious position. And I'm trying not to do that anymore. And I think a lot of it has to do with seeing this child that is completely open to the world around them. She's completely fearless. She's, you know, wears every ounce of her heart on her sleeve. And it's, it's a good reminder to see that in someone, especially someone that you created, and to see yourself in that as well and be like, oh, that's possible, like to just be free in that way. I agree with everything you said. It's very eye-opening to see shame is taught. I think embarrassment to an extent is taught. Mm -hmm. um, and you're right because like I try to encourage the 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 wonder and curiosity and the wide-eyed brightness of children with, you know, and encourage that as much as possible while still being like, you can't just jump off a cliff because you will hurt yourself and you can't talk in the middle of everybody else because there is rules of conversation. Right. Uh, but it's, it's so much fun. And I, I applaud you. I applaud you for doing that because it's not easy. And I was sort of the same way that I, I didn't start going to therapy until the last couple of years. And then it's like that door opened. Yeah. And I've said this a lot on this podcast, actually, that this is sort of a little bit of therapy for me. It's a bit of catharsis for me. And in that I'm not a Broadway performer, I don't get the opportunity to do cabaret shows or yeah. like, well, <laughs> take it back to you for a little bit. I guess the performer in general, but like people get on stage because they need some sort of validation or they like the attention for one reason or another, or it's, if they're shy people, it's their chance to be noticed without either feeling guilty about it or without being afraid or feeling anxious about it. Yeah, and that, that all me. comes, that all comes from somewhere. Right. And your childhood, your parents, mm -hmm. there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of therapy needs in the Broadway community. I must say. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, the other thing that I thought about is that, um, you know, it, to, to wrap up the, the having a kid thing is that I read this great book over COVID called The Untethered Soul, which is, you know, a self-help book. But mm -hmm. It's great. And there's this one thing that they talk about in it, like um, 
Like for instance, when you're like really down or really depressed about something like say like your, you know, girlfriend left you and you don't eat, you don't sleep, you don't, nothing, nothing satisfies you, right? Nothing can satiate you. Like it's just the world is like a blur. And then you, you get a call or a text from that person and said, I'm so sorry I made this huge mistake. I want to get back together. And then suddenly you have a million pounds of energy. You're just like, I can run a marathon. I can clean my whole apartment. Like I can do this, this, this. And the whole point being like, we have that within us always. Mm -hmm. We just need the right trigger to unlock it. Right. And maybe that's not the best sort of example of a positive trigger, but having a kid is like having that trigger. Like I could be having the worst day and then she like laughs at something ridiculous <laughs> and it's like, what, 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 are, what are my issues? Like, that's just, it just like unlocks that joy, that happiness that's like always welling up and like waiting to be released that we push down ourselves, you know? And so that's, it's, it's, it's a cool blessing in that way. Just something, something that I learned early on was that when you're, when you're pushing down the bad, when you're suppressing emotion, period. So when you're pushing down the bad, you're also limiting the good that you experience. And percent. yeah. And, and so something that I, I recommend to anybody listening, speaking from experience is that it's okay to feel down. It's okay to feel bad and you acknowledge it and sit in it and see what it has to say. And then you move on. I feel like you can relate to this a little bit that the more you push it away, actually, the more it grows, it doesn't go away at all. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Festers, <laughs> we'll say. Let's go back, though. And and tell me about what got you into performing in the first place. When did you start? Was it acting, singing, dancing? Like what all came first? I think I probably was a singer first. We're going to just take dancing out of that equation until college <laughs> when I was forced to learn to fake that I could dance. Um, but yeah, I was always a singer first and I kind of used to sing the shower. I was a really shy kid, really, really, really shy. And um, I used to sing the shower, sing along to the radio. I was like a boy soprano. And my mom kept telling me, you know, I should audition for things or I should go to the choir. And I was like, yeah, I know. And, um, you know, I was okay at sports. Like I was a medium sized kid. So like I could do things normally, but like there wasn't like that thing. So I remember when I was in, I, well, I did a couple of, of shows at the, at the local theater, the like community theater when I was a kid. Cause my grandma used to, uh, direct kids shows. And so she would put me and my brother in them sometimes against our will. <laughs> um, we ultimately ended up having fun, but like, it was just a silly thing that we did. And then I remember when I was in fourth grade or fifth grade, something like that during music class, um, they couldn't get any boys to audition for the choir. And, <laughs> and so during music class, which was mandatory, they would make us all stand in a line and sing some song and then the teacher would walk up to each of us and put her ear to our mouths and like go from one kid to the next and be like listen to us singing and then she would tap you on the shoulder which would indicate that like you were good enough to come you should come audition 
to sing for the choir, which is actually kind of messed up if you think about it. But oh, um, totally, totally. <laughs> but but it gave me the courage to come in because like, oh, maybe I could do this, you know. And so from then on, I was a choir boy and I was a choir kid all through middle school and high school. I almost went into college just for vocal, like as a vocal major. When I, w- I would do some plays sometimes in high school, just like ensemble parts, small parts. At one point, I auditioned for the musical The Fantastics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I auditioned for The Boy, you know, like there's like the main guy. And uh, I got pretty far. This is still at the community theater. And they decided to cast it all older. They cast adults. And I was like, oh, whatever. But the director liked me, so he wanted me to come in and play the mute, which is a character who uh, very clearly doesn't speak or say or sing anything. And I was like, this is a musical, and I'm playing the mute. Excuse me. <laughs> but I didn't have anything else to do, so I did it. But what it did was that it made me realize that I was just kind of like up there on the stage making faces and like, you know, faking along to everything and and it taught me to listen for the first time because I had no other choice but to listen. And as soon as I registered that, it unlocked this whole sort of world of potential within me that I didn't know was there or possible. You know, like I couldn't get a role in Peter Pan as a lost boy when they cast like 20 kids because I was a terrible actor as a child, apparently. <laughs> and um, it's just because I didn't listen. And so, um, and I got like the, whatever the local community theater award for that show and like all this other stuff. And uh, so that kind of led me to believe that there could be a possibility for that and going forward. That is, that's super fun. I, 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 all it takes is just, you know, the one experience to kind of flip the switch. Yeah. But, yeah. But then you moved. So eventually, obviously, you made, made it to New York. And I was reading, mm-hmm. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you got your first Broadway gig from a complete open call, right? I did. Yeah. I mean, I was lucky enough to have an agent when I got to the city after college. We did, you know, the college showcase things. And I got an agent, but um, Rock of Ages was my first Broadway show, which. I was absolutely not right for in any regard. <laughs> but, you know, I, I was going to all the open calls and um, it turned out that I was just wrong enough for all the parts that I could be a swing for all of them. <laughs> <laughs> that was just like not quite rock and roll enough for the lead, not quite, you know, silly enough for the little uh, German character like not quite sexy enough but like what like i was like right in the middle and i could sing all the parts normal so too normal of a guy i was too normal i was a very normal person in that class and um i don't know if you ever met constantine marulis but he's very much not normal love him but not normal not not a normal guy i will agree and um and yeah so i just went to an open call and um they called me back and that was that then I mean, I've, I've got next that, you know, there's, there's been a lot of cabaret shows that you've done and I, I don't, I don't know if I'm finding more about cabaret shows from you because the ones you write just happen to be so good. They win lots of awards. So people talk about them <laughs> or if you just do an astronomically large amount in comparison to, to other people, but, but I you do a lot. I do an astronomical amount. Well, 
You do you do do quite a bit and you said do do. <laughs> when do you or when do you realize I guess that the cabaret scene is something that really interests you too because it's a complete well I'm just going to say a completely different path from the Broadway stuff but yeah. It it is and it isn't. It's performing, it's getting yourself out there, et cetera, et cetera. But to write your own material and then to make it personal is yeah. a specific choice. Yeah, I was very much not uh, into that even a little bit. I mean, I would go see friends in cabaret shows and I would, you know, see like them do the up close and personal stuff. I was like, nah, no, no, no. Nobody's going to know this person. Like I wanted to like be mysterious. I was just going to be like, oh, that's that enigma. That's Jeremy so broody he's so mysterious <laughs> but what is what's his story we'll never know <laughs> and um and i the, my first show was in 2014 and by that point i had already had my newsies i had been in smash like i had had some notoriety and people had had come to me and asked if i was interested in doing these shows and i was like nah peace and um and then after um I shot the last five years. I didn't have a job for a like a over a year, and so I didn't. I needed money, and you know this, the cabaret scene is not the hugest, but I had enough of a following that I could make some money. So I like, I did like a tour of my first show, which was called Breaking Character. I went to San Francisco, Indianapolis, and then I went to Fifty Four Below. So I was kind of forced into it a little bit, but I think secretly part of me inside was like this is something that you should tackle. Like it's something that you need because what I hadn't realized is that I, I always wrote stuff. Like I always wrote music growing up, but I never played it or showed it to anybody ever. Hmm. Um, and I used to write poetry and stuff. I just never, and I never, it was all for me, like never for anybody else. And it made me realize that like I have this writer soul or whatever within me and this was an opportunity for me to actually finally share it or like to, to experiment with it. And so um, Breaking Character was the first show that I wrote and it became, you know, it, it was like it, it was disguised as a, as a normal cabaret show, normal like we're just going to tell stories and then sort of towards the end, the whole thing broke apart like at the end of Pippin where the curtain gets pulled up and all that sort of stuff mm -hmm. and became this super intimate sort of confessional moment. And it was all by design, but it was thrilling for me to get to, to, to um, you know, create that experience for an audience and to set them up for something and then throw them for a loop into something completely different. And that's something that I try to do with all of my, all of my cabaret shows now. So there's always a twist and every show that I write, um, the second show I did, which was called Jeremy's Terrible, um, <laughs> was like a game show, uh, sort of a vibe. And at the end, the whole thing sort of got flipped on its head. And I, you know, quote unquote, broke down in front of everybody. And it got to the point where like audience members were like, are you okay? Like, it's okay. Like, we love you. It's okay. <laughs> I was like, yes, I got you. <laughs> That's called acting, people. Yes, bitch. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, so Carry On follows that and takes it kind of to another level. Um, I wanted to do something completely scripted. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the episode. 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Back to your point, it was, it's just, it has become a complete, it's like a chance for me to write my own show and to completely be in 100% control of it. I mean, as actors, I didn't really realize this until I was actually doing it. Like, you, you are a vessel, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, you are the conduit to which other people express their art. And maybe you get to add a little bit of it in there not always i mean try to get yourself into the cast of wicked and see if they let you do your own thing it's not gonna happen <laughs> but like it's like it's you know, you know what i'm saying it's like it's like we have very little control over our over our art all we're in control of is the final product that the audience sees on stage you know yeah and that's the best part of i think being an actor on stage is like having that control and then doing film television you have even less control because you get to do it a couple times you know, a couple different takes and then somebody else goes and edits together and you see it six to 12 months later and hope that they made you look good. And that's, it's out of your hands. So having something that I could completely have control of and tell like is empowering, you know, and it's really, and I think having that empowerment allows you to be more invested in it and it allows you to be more creative and, um, and the audience grabs hold of that. And the other great thing about Cabaret, at least my experience, um, is that I started doing it when I already had a level of notoriety. And so everybody that came to see me was already a fan. <laughs> and I mean, there's nothing like getting to perform in front of a friendly audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like you, it's everything is forgiven. Any little slip up, any little flat note, any weird hiccup, it's like they don't care. They love you. And it's it's such a, I mean, it's it's a, almost an addictive kind of environment. You have to be careful because it's still not real, like really real. But it's, it's definitely um, a fun sort of place to be. Being an actor in general, you, like I said a second ago, like it's, it's needing the validation or it's needing the attention or it's finding a place. It's finding a tribe. It's, it's being, feeling not normal in normal society. So you find a place there being somebody else. You and Matthew McConaughey said something very similar. I was talking to Matthew McConaughey once and (laughs) about, about green lights, his book recently. And he said, um, and I asked him too, I said, why did you, why did you decide to write this at at this age of 50? Like you could have waited till 60, 70, 80, whatever, or earlier. And he's like, well, I've done so much in my life that has been you know, get to write or director, or the editor, or the blah, blah, blah. And this is the one thing that I can do from my brain to your brain, uninterrupted, unfiltered. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's absolutely an, an incredible thing. I was actually going to ask about TV and film too, but then you brought it up is yeah. TV and film. Like I said, like you said, even that much worse because you, you can't do it over and over again. You don't, you're not doing it for years. And mm-hmm. The, you're at the con- the control, the mercy of 
of the editor and the director. Of course, the director is the moment the editor is putting it all together and you have no control over what the final product is more or less. But in, in theater, and I'm just talking out loud here, but in theater, it's funny because, you know, we're looking all the people we're looking for the community. We're looking for tribe. And we somehow there's comfort in being told who to be and what to say and who we are on stage. While at the same time, what you just said about needing to do your own thing so that you're not filtered and that you're not seen through any other way except exactly how you want to be seen. It's right. it's this competing dichotomy. Yeah. Well, what's really interesting is that I think the reason I got into theater in the first place was to not was to do the opposite of that, was to get away from myself, was to escape all mm-hmm. of my issues and my things that I'm that I didn't want to deal with so I could escape into something else something predetermined something that's you know that's going to have whatever ending already plotted out for it you know and then you could sort of let everything else fall away and it's, it's a very romantic kind of notion but it only lasts for so long and as and as I got into my you know adult real adulthood you know into my thirties really is when I started doing these shows. Um, it became like, that's, that's only going to carry you so far, you know, escaping and running away is only going to carry you so far because there's things in life every day that hits you that you have to learn how to deal with. And as I learned how to deal with stuff in life, I was like, Oh, I should probably deal with stuff in the way that I can best communicate, which is through theater, through art, through song. And like, if, if I can do that really well, imagine how much, how much more exciting and how much more impactful what I can do would be if I filtered it through this medium. And you're setting an example now for your daughter, setting an example that you didn't have. Yeah. So you'll yeah, be able I mean, to show her that it's okay to be expressive, that it's okay yeah. to have feelings. It's okay to be sad, right? It's okay yeah. just to experience the range of being a person. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's it's terrifying and it's scary. I mean, oh, my last show I did was all about how afraid I am all the time of, of things. And What are you afraid that, of? well you know a lot of it is a lot of it is is sharing and a lot of it is being vulnerable yeah um you know the i've always had trouble accessing like some basic emotions like because fear is like the it like leads the way, you know, so like it gets in the way. So before I can allow myself to, to, to access like real happiness or like real wonder or real pain, fear sort of jumps the gun there and blocks those sorts Mm -hmm. of things. And, you know, so you have to sort of take things at that. and, And so it becomes, the fear becomes at the root of things, you know, it's because of whatever, things that happened to me in my childhood there's lots of them but like for some reason fear took root and and took precedent and became like 
And I and the, the 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 crazy thing is like until I started doing these shows, I didn't really know that about myself. Like I started being like, what am I gonna talk about? Like what do I wanna say? What is gonna be meaningful? What's you know, what's what's gonna really impact people? And as I started thinking about things, I would say like, no, I can't go there. No, I can't go there. No, I don't want to go there. And then I was like, and my music director, Ben Rahula, who's also brilliant and has sort of helped pull these things out of me. It's just like the fact that you're recognizing that is the indication that that's exactly what you should do, Hmm. you know? And, you know, a lot of less, a lot less things scare me now. I would say, I mean, there's still plenty, but just speaking them out loud and sharing them and sort of giving other people an insight into what's causing whatever ails you and distributing that, you know, away from yourself is very, very um cool feeling and what i realized is that people openly accept that and that's one of the reasons why people come to the theater i mean mm-hmm. i come to the theater i come to a movie not realizing that like i need the pain of that character or like i need the joy of that character because it gives me insight into my own whatever and then i can deal with it once i realized that i could be the one to do that for people it was like that's what i'm going to do it's a very touching, it's a very real thing to be able to allow yourself to experience too, because it's, it's a level of vulnerability that you have to, yeah. you have to peel this back. And the good thing about all of this is that it, it compounds with the people who are with you and the people that are watching, right? Because they come up yeah. after afterwards and say, oh, well, I felt that too. And like you were saying that it's encouraging and it's, yeah. it's very emotionally satisfying. I've got to, I've got to imagine that you have mm-hmm. all these people who came to see their version of you that they have in their head. Yep. Yeah. Because you're the goofy guy on TV. Lizzie's version of me. Yes. <laughs> Lizzie, the producer. Sorry. The producer, yes. <laughs> Um, so they come to see this version of you that they have in their head. And I would love to, to take a guess here that they walk away loving you that much more because of the vulnerability and the, the whole personness. I will coin this mm-hmm. phrase, the whole personness that you are providing for everyone to be able to see, yeah. right? To sort of piggyback off that, it becomes, it becomes about them. And a lot of times we get into this business for us, you know, like I got in it to escape and for me, you know, and it became, oh, I recognize what it's doing for other people and that if I was them, what it could do for me in their position. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you start doing something for other people, it becomes, you know, it sort of becomes a part of the universe in a way, you know, like it becomes, it, 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 it shatters whatever barrier that you've blocked it off. And it, you know, there's, there's this, this thing that I say in the show that when I, you know, first met my daughter, it's like, I thought it was, I thought at first that she took, you know, like took a piece of me. Like I felt like, you know, less of myself, but uh, what I realized is that 
it's not less, it's that it like opened me up so that I could join the rest of the universe. Like it's like my heart spill, it like spills out of your chest. It's not mm-hmm. contained anymore. It's suddenly like it takes up every ounce of space between you and those that you love. It's in every particle of air, you know? And it's always been that way. You just didn't realize it until you feel that sort of love that I think can only really come from having a child. And, um, you know, I've loved before and I've been in love with people. And in a way, it's momentary. You know, it's like it's it's something that is still inside of us. You know, we share it with one person maybe, but as soon as you have that life that you brought into the world, it's it's a whole other level. Like it's... And that's not to to crap on love, uh, you know, that's <laughs> great, but it's like it's different. It's it's something it's something different, and I try to express that in the show the best way that I can. But um, um, yeah, it's 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 a it's a new kind of feeling that, and it's all about sharing, right? It's about it's about doing something for other people, and so whether it's for your daughter or when you're in my business, whether it's for anybody that's in the audience, you know, it's, it's for them knowing that they're a part of the universe that you're also part of. So it's like, it's all cyclical, you know? Absolutely. I saw Dear Evan Hansen about three months after my son, my first son was born. Yeah. That was rough. (laughs) That was so rough when that was the first time I had seen anything that was like, parent kid related after I had my kid. Right. Right. And right. it just it ripped, ripped me to the core. It was one of those moments where I was like, yeah, yeah, this is this is a different kind of love. It's a different kind of mm-hmm. of feeling and, and infatuation. And and it was oh it's beautiful. Anyway, back to your Broadway credits. It's funny because you had let's see Bonnie and Clyde ran for 30 days. <laughs> Great music. Don't know what happened to it. And all of a sudden the show closed. Nobody saw it. (laughs) (laughs) That's what happened. Nobody bought tickets. And yeah, nobody went. That was what happened. Um, (laughs) And I mean, at that point, like you're on Broadway. Do you you personally, do you take it personally when something like that doesn't quite go as planned? Because I mean, you follow up with that and you've got Newsies, which then becomes your Tony nomination, your Grammy nomination. And obviously two, two sides back to back shows that are two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. And so when you're in the middle of the Bonnie, the Bonnie and Clyde decline, I mean, everyone knows you can see the writing on the wall, the houses are empty, whatever the case is, yeah. is, is that something that you feel responsible for? And cause I, so many people that have been in a situation like that, that I've talked to, that have been like, that was it. I wanted to quit. I just wanted to walk away. No, actually. No, I didn't feel responsible in any way. Um, I was tried to be made to feel responsible. Really? Uh, that's a whole other story. But like what we would, what we ended up doing um, was it brought us all really closer together. Like we did this thing, this crazy thing where we made wanted posters and we made like a thousand of them. And then we scattered them all over Times Square and to try to drum up people like, you know, the actors like we did that. we mm-hmm. did that on our own <laughs> we got in trouble um with the police but it's fine <laughs> well, um, you're but it was, Clyde, it was right? very much on brand yeah and um it just uh you know it it became something that we 
that we shared together, you know, and, and we created it and we, you know, you never know, like, and that was really the only time that I'd been a part of like a real flop. And we also were proud of it. And so as, as long as you can sort of take pride in the thing that you're doing and whether or not it becomes something great or not, I mean, I might have a skewed vision of it because I knew pretty quickly that as soon as it was it was showing decline that I could probably jump into Newsies, which I wasn't going to be able to do because mm-hmm. it was coming in that same season um, with or without me. And um, so, you know, I, I kind of had a little bit of tunnel vision in that way. But I don't think that anybody... And I shouldn't speak for everybody, but I do think that it was something that we were all incredibly glad and happy to have had and, you know, experienced together because because um, it was just a lovely experience. And I know that, that that's not how it is across the board. I mean, I've talked to my wife a lot uh, and other people about negative experience that they've had in the theater. And there's a lot of it. And I know a lot of it's kind of sort of come up to light lately with all the Scott Rudin stuff. Mm-hmm. And all the stuff that is drumming up and people being like, well, it's not just that. It's at every level, which it's true. And, um, you know, I've been uniquely blessed to not have to deal with it. Um, now, there's probably a certain amount of ignorance caught up in that as well. but um, And sort of the fact that I am who I am and probably didn't have to deal with it as much as people that were a little bit lower on the food chain. Um but in terms of of where I was at that Bonnie and Clyde Newsies juncture, I mean, it was a magical time for me. Like everything was everything was rising. You know, mm-hmm. I had just come off from Newsies at Paper Mill, and I was doing Bonnie and Clyde on Broadway at night while I was rehearsing that um, during the. I was rehearsing Bonnie and Clyde during the day and doing Newsies at Paper Mill at night, I should say. And I was just like on top of the world, and I just knew that the next thing was gonna fall into place like it was Mm. just that energy and then right after newsies or during newsies rather is when i got smash and it just like kept snowballing snowballing and eventually the snowball crumbled (laughs) and (laughs) melted it always felt like i was in the right place during that when did when did the all the workshops or greatest showman kick in was that in the same time frame no no that was that was a few years later i was already doing supergirl which was the sort of the thing that broke my drought of of work when I went to LA for pilot season. I was like, maybe I need to go somewhere else to get a job. <laughs> and um, and uh, so during the first season of Supergirl, I um, yeah, that's when I did the demos for the Greatest Showman while I was in LA. There, like, there's like a lot. Fifteen. I I've been. I went uh, down a deep dive of Greatest Showman videos <laughs> for a while, and I, I of How course. Yeah, I of course ran across the I, I guess the now infamous video of of one of the uh, I guess it was what was it the meeting where you you were all performing it was the day after you had like surgery on his surgery, nose yeah. to remove skin cancer. Yeah, exactly. It was like it was like the it was like the table read that greenlit the movie yeah. to get produced. Yeah. Essentially. And and then that led me into a clip of from one of your cabaret shows that was called like the time I saved greatest showman. (laughs) 
That was a very ballsy title. I know. (laughs) But we wanted to get that clickbait, you know. Yep. Yep. And uh, somewhat true. I would say it's not not true. Right. I mean, somebody would have probably saved it. But that day it happened to be me. Yes. Yes. It's not saying like without me would have wouldn't have happened like most likely would have. But right. Well, for, for those who don't know, Hugh was not allowed to sing because this table read was the day after he had a surgery to remove uh, something on his nose, skin's cancer, I think. And then Jeremy was singing all of Hugh's parts, sitting next to Hugh at the table read. And mm-hmm. and, you know, and I was also playing the other lead male role at the same time. And I had also just um, less than a week before had bronchitis yes. and had completely lost my voice. Yes. And um, by the time... By the time the reading came along, I was like maybe, maybe fifty to sixty percent vocally there, and I was, and I had showed up because I was excited about. I had done all the demos for Hugh for all of his parts, because they wanted someone to to sing it all like more rock and rolly style to like present to him like this is how we want it to be done or mm-hmm. something like that, because it's not like his normal vibe, and. Um, and so I did that because I'm friends with Benj and Justin, Benj Pasek and Justin Paul. Mm-hmm. And I, um, and so when the reading came along, they're like, hey, you want to read this, you know, the secondary character, secondary lead? And I was like, yeah. So I flew myself up there and I was, I had just been really sick, but I only had like a couple of songs. And I was like, I can squeak through these. It'll be fine. And then I'm on the plane going there. And they're like, uh, we have an emergency. Hugh has to have surgery. And he can't sing and we have to do this thing and everybody's already here in town. Like, what do we do? You're the only one that knows it because you did all the demos. And then Justin, the composer, who's also a really good singer, had also lost his voice and couldn't do it. <laughs> and they were like, you're the only one that knows it. And we don't, we are too afraid to try to teach somebody new in like 12 hours. And I was like, oh God, you gotta be kidding me. And so, you know, like, I buckled down and, and did it. This all used to be in my show in Carry On and I, I, it's it's actually not in this version because um, we released it already long before we knew we were going to tape it. Plus, yeah. I've told the story for the last couple of years. It was time to retire it. But um, but yeah, it um, so I was standing up there singing all of his parts and doing all of my parts and trying not to have my head explode all the while, like on the verge of completely losing my voice. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was rough. It was rough, but um, it, there was one point where that video is, where that video was of at the end of the show where he decides to, you know, break the doctor's orders and break out, start singing, which mm-hmm. was an incredible moment to watch. Um, <laughs> but for me, I had just done a song right before that where I had completely lost my voice in the middle of a song and I felt, I was like devastated, embarrassed. And I still had to sing that next song, which was a little bit easier to sing. And I was like, I'm this, I'm gonna have redeem myself here. <laughs> and then he takes over. I was like, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it was this magical moment. So uh, it was well, that thing. was like the whole time when <clears throat> I think that that was the whole time when, the first time Kiela got comfortable coming out from behind her music stand too, right? Like, oh my god, like yeah. she was she, just shy and about the whole thing. I mean, she. She she got the part during that presentation. We were phenomenal. like phenomenal. Literally, nobody else can do that. Phenomenal. Uh, yeah. yeah, she's she's still one of my favorite 
people that have come out of that. But did you did you at any point think or was there ever talk of being able to audition for or get the Zac Efron role, that role you were reading for originally? No, no. I mean, early on after I was when I was doing the demos and then my hope was that doing that table read would, you know, at least get me in the door. Right. Um, but I think by that point, it was already he was already in talks or had already maybe had even already agreed to do it i wasn't aware of that but you know i allowed myself to hope for it you know we're going to take a short break stay tuned for more of the episode for these types of movies though there's such a strong vocal ensemble though that i mean I, I think to the most recent example that I can think of, of, of the prom, right? The prom Broadway mm-hmm. cast, Vasti Monpoint was the only one who made it mm-hmm. into the movie, even as, even as ensemble, even as chorus. And that doesn't, that yeah. doesn't make sense to me. I get, I get that Meryl Streep sells tickets. I get that Nicole Kidman and yeah. James Corden sell tickets, right? I get the name, but for the, for everybody else and you already had a notoriety anyway with everything that yeah. you were doing like why i don't know why no you know i think that i think that people want to create their own version of something without you know whispers or like oh this is how we did it before they want to you know it's whether it's director or producer or some of the actors being like, I don't want to be hampered by somebody else's experience of that, which I understand. I mean, like when I did Bonnie and Clyde, I didn't, I had never seen the movie with Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. And I didn't watch it because I didn't want to be influenced by their, you know, interpretation of it. Um, so, I mean, I, I get it in that way. I don't, I wish I could understand like all the other nuances that go into that sort of thing, but I don't, I'm not, I don't have a producer brain. I don't know how they think. I don't know how they work. I mean, being exposed to a little <laughs> bit of that, it's it's about raising the money and making money on once it's out. So, I mean, that's yeah, that's I mean, why they have whatever algorithms of like this person plus this person and this person, this this person, this is gonna right. that'll that'll tackle this market. This person will tackle this market. Oh, we need this little market to fill. Who can fill that void? We'll put that person in there. You know, I don't know. Maybe. Well, in Greatest Showman two, I will cast you as my lead. <laughs> appreciate it <laughs> um the show's right. not the show must go on <laughs> the greatest show demands go on yes um all right so we'll wrap up here uh, may 6th <laughs> is the premiere of your show on uh, 54 below and may 6th only right is the live chat for fans to interact with each other before and during the show Right. Yeah. There's like a live chat during the show. There's like a, it's like a live broadcast. And then after the show, if you get a VIP ticket, we have like an hour long show with me and my music director. We'll sing some bonus songs and answer some questions. And then it's on demand for like two or three weeks after that. Three weeks. The website says yes. Three weeks. Available to fans across the world and outer space. (laughs) Do they get Wi-Fi in outer space? Can they stream? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the satellite is bloop, 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 turn it around and you can stream it anywhere you want. Yeah, that's how yeah. it's technology. It's easy. Got to get that uh, sweet spot. Yeah. So we'll wrap up the episode with the three standard closing questions. I ask everybody, the first one very simply is what motivates you? What motivates me? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of things. Um, but I will say, I will say the opportunity for happiness in myself and to cause happiness in others. 
All right. Second question then. What advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path? Knowing who you are like as an individual and what sets you apart from other people uh, is going to be your greatest asset. I think often people say like, oh, especially in this business, they're like, oh, you know, we have to make you a blank slate. We have to like, you have to be, you know, malleable so you can become and do anything. But I think knowing what sets you apart and like what you're good at and becoming the best part of that or the best version of yourself is always the smartest and first thing that you should try to do. Awesome. Okay. So the last question then, this is the hardest one. If you can only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, <sighs> what would you see? Oh God. That's like a different question than what's your favorite show? Because right. like, do I want to see? No. Do I want to watch like West Side Story a hundred times? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I'm going to just go with my gut on this one and say rent because it was one of my first like loves and it's the content while it can be dreary like was before i was old enough to understand the dreariness fully provided me with like a lot of joy too so i think i could probably get joy and emotion from it that's my answer to this question too so hashtag twinsies hashtag question three twinsies Hashtag twinsies. All right. So everyone go to 54below.com. Of course, get your tickets for Carry On from Jeremy Jordan. And where else can we find you on social media? Um, I'm on the Twitter and the Instagram at Jeremy M. Jordan. I'm thinking about getting a TikTok. I think. It hasn't happened yet. I think you should. I don't know. <laughs> I spend too much time on my phone anyways. So I, I've got a TikTok account and i don't know what to do with it like i look at other tiktok <laughs> people and i'm like yeah all right they covered all the ideas i, I yeah. don't i don't have any more ideas yeah that's fine let's they do their thing <laughs> there you go all right get more of me at the theaterpodcast.com show you support at the theaterpodcast.com slash patreon had a little production help for this one from elizabeth wheelis you can find me on instagram and twitter on theater underscore podcast leave a rating leave a review thank you to jukebox the ghost for the intro and outro music and jeremy Thank you so much. I'm so looking forward to seeing your show. And this has been such a great conversation. Awesome. Great talking to you guys. Or to you and the other people that we're not seeing on or <laughs> hearing. <laughs> Take a deep breath, make the world a little colorful. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.